Well, good morning. Good. Well, welcome again to those of you who are just joining, as well as those of you who always join. I'm glad to see you too. Uh, if you are uh, new uh, to worshiping with us, we are wrapping up today a series um, on the church. And uh, so the topic area is ecclesiology. And we have covered uh, quite a few um, uh, spaces uh, in the scripture over the last several weeks together. We've talked about the church needing to be cohesive or unified. We talked about it being exclusive. We talked about it being inclusive. We talked about the church being offensive when it comes to our, our mission uh, and not on the defense all the time. Uh, but this morning, we're going to talk about the church being distinctive, distinctive. I told the first uh, uh, group of uh, worshipers at 930, there's one part of me that wishes that I preached this message, that the church is distinctive or the distinctive church uh, as its first message. But uh, as the gospel would have it in all of its wonderful paradoxes, and the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Uh, and so maybe this message, because it is last, will stick up first in your mind, even though we didn't preach it first, even though we've covered a lot of ground. If you have an interest in uh, uh, listening to or uh, re-watching any of the other messages, you can obviously find them online as well as on our, um, on our virtual platforms and, and podcasts. Um, you can see the entire series. Let's, um, let's ask for God's help and get started. Father, in the name of Jesus, our cry for help does not fall on deaf ears. We know that you are the heavenly father. You're not some customer service person who is away from your desk on break. You desire that we speak to you. You desire that we come humbly. You desire that we seek your face, that we turn from our sins. Lord God, and we come doing that this morning. We confess, oh God, that we are not holy. We are, you are other than, you are distinct from and other than us. You are a holy God and you call us to be holy. And we confess that we fall short of that moment by moment and day by day. And we worship you in light of the fact that even though we fall short day by day, Lord God, your mercies are still new every morning. We need you, God. Our, our sensitivities, our proclivities, uh, our, our, where our minds live are often distracted. Heavenly Father, our phone may ring in just a few moments or we get a text message that causes us to shift away from the screen that the word is on into uh, responding to a Snapchat or some other communication or perhaps a, a juicy update from one of the websites we frequent like a YouTube or something. Lord God, would you help us this morning? Would you help us to be dialed in on you? Would you speak to us? Would you let there be a demonstration of your Holy Spirit making it absolutely undeniable that you've not only heard our prayer, but you've seen our needs and you've come down and you've beautifully and wonderfully addressed them. Lord God, you, you know where each one of us lives, not just in terms of our geographic address, but emotionally, you know where we are. You know where we live, Lord God, in terms of our need. You know what issues stand up highest in our hearts and minds right now. And we need a savior. We need a God. We need you to speak into these areas of our life. Would you do so, oh holy God, based on your agenda, your time, your principles, Lord God, we trust you. Would you move me completely out of the way, oh God, and allow your son to be clearly seen, your gospel clearly heard, your word to be clearly divided. Equip us, oh God 
make us ready for your service and that we might be worshipers in spirit and in truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As mentioned earlier, we are looking at the distinctive church, the distinctive church. Now, by expression, what I mean is that the Lord has called us to be distinctive. He has called us both up and he has called us out. What's interesting about that is that the phrase ecclesiology, which means the study of the church, well, who is the ecclesia, right? The ecclesia are literally, literally the called out ones. So now you see my tension is why I felt like maybe I should have preached this one first. But no, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Hopefully this will be really sticky for you. John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 is kind of our launch pad this morning. If you've got your Bibles or your devices, you can go ahead and scroll over to that or look up at the screen if you didn't bring your sword with you to the battle. We'll let you borrow one. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And it is not of the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I believe that in these two big paragraphs that the Apostle John is calling the church up and he is calling the church out. Where do we get this from? If you take a look at the language that the apostle uses here, he uses this family language. Did you notice how he even felt to, if I saw Daniel earlier, he even felt necessary to double click. He talked to fathers and children and he, and he talked to soldiers and young ones. He talked to them twice. He repeated himself like any great dad does, as if you didn't hear him the first time. But in this first paragraph, I think we clearly see that, that, that the Apostle John is calling us to this. He's telling us that the Lord is calling us to grow up into our identity. What do I mean by grow up and where do I get this from? If you look carefully at the passage, the family language is also progressive. In this idea of speaking to you who are little children, I believe that there's at least three major categories of Christian growth and family that is found in this text. I believe he speaks to what I would call the sucklings, the little ones. He speaks to the sages, that is the father, who are, who are greatly experienced. And he speaks to the soldiers, those that are valiant and vigilant in the word of God. Why does he speak to the suckling, if you will? I believe that those who are marked in the scripture as little children, because look at him, he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I believe that is the hallmark of young life in Christ. We find ourselves in a season of perpetually stumbling over ourselves and regularly revisited by our sin and the favorite attribute of God becomes forgiveness because that's just where we hang out. 
You're a suckling. Or as the writer of the book of Hebrews would call it, man, you're a babe in Christ. And, and listen, there's nothing wrong with being a babe in Christ if you're still supposed to be a babe in Christ. It's not problematic until your diet was supposed to have changed years ago. He says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He speaks to the suckling. The, the, the suckling life, and we've all have been there at some point. And if you skipped it, you grew up too fast and you don't have some of the foundations you need. But the suckling life is this. It is a season that is marked by cycles of sin and repentance where we are gradually and regularly growing in our dependency on God because we formerly, just recently, were doing life all in our own strength. And we recognize that coming to know Jesus Christ isn't just get the gospel out of the way and then let me go back to what I was doing with a little bit of moral compliance. Let me try to clean up my act. And this is what the suckling does. This is what little children in their faith do. They regularly, as they're trying to fight the battle of worldliness, find themselves regularly falling on, them fa on their faces and hopefully falling on their faces at the foot of the cross. But this is the life of little children in the faith. You ought to be growing in the love for the cross, but you also got to grow in some other ways. You see, I, we're called to grow up in our identity, but here's one of the ways we're also called to grow. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection in some of your Bibles, maturity in others, it'll say, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. In other words, that's, that's Christianity 101. Everybody repents and everybody needs to refresh their hearts on the, on the beauty and the power of the cross. But there is a, a, a season that is marked by immaturity in every single one of our lives where it's like, Lord, I can't believe I did that again. I don't know if you're as tired of hearing from me as I am to talking about you or talking to you in this area. I'm getting some nods. You can also substitute amens for that. <laughs> he writes to the little children. Being distinctive means we're called up, but called to grow up into this familial identity of being his children. But he uses other family language. He talks to fathers who have known him, who is from the beginning. I believe that the, the suckling life is marked by one of perpetual cycles of sin, but the sage life is one that is marked by deep intimacy. We know him and a deep desire to pour our lives into others. We have a great love for God's wisdom, and we recognize we just can't keep it for ourselves. You're kind of a father in the faith. You're regularly looking for someone else in order to layer into some of the great things that God has shared. We're called to grow up in this way. we got to grow up into our identity in Christ. He also turns to the, to the young men and the young women, those who are strong because you're strong in the word of God and it abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. We are also called to this distinctive where there is a season in all of our lives in our Christian maturity that is marked by victory over sin, victory over fear, and victory over faithlessness and a deep love for the sword of God. We're experiencing him as our sword and our shield. We're thriving. And we all move through these various seasons. And I would pray that none of you have put the gospel accelerator on cruise control in your life. You're called to continue to not only produce fruit in these respective spaces and seasons, right? There's fruit to be, uh, to be born by the suckling, by the sage, and by the soldier. But you're also called to move forward and to advance or to evolve in that particular station. In other words, I can't stay a suckling for long. But while I'm in that season, I need to maximize it and produce fruit that is distinct to that season. 
I won't always be a soldier because I just don't have the energy. But man, maybe I transition to being a sage. You see what's going on here? These progressions are not unique to John. Look at what the Apostle Paul says to his disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You therefore, my son, familial language, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So moving from just being a son to now being a sage, start teaching others. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier. We've seen that before. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And if anyone competes in athletics, so he's pressing again on all these identities that we are to be evolving into in our Christian growth. He is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And then he also calls some of us and says we need to grow into being farmers. A hardworking farmer must be the first, the first, the first to partake of the crops. There's a season in my life where the things that I am exporting and distributing into the lives of others need to first have been tasted by me. I need to be inspecting that fruit to make sure that I'm not contaminating my disciples. I need to make sure that that stuff has been proven against the backdrop of my own life. It is, is it evident it is growing in me? Farmers are focused on what two things? Maturity and multiplicity. I need to be growing a lot of it and it needs to be good. I don't send a lot of it and it's green or gross or rotten and I can't have beautiful crops that are minimal in size and there's not much to go around. We're called up into our relationship with God as a distinctive. We're not just his creatures, we are his children, we are his soldiers, we are his athletes, we are his teachers. We serve in the lives of some as fathers. We're to grow as sucklings, grow as sages, and we grow as soldiers. Jesus would even go so far as to say, I'm a vine, my father is a farmer, and you are branches. And I'm going to actively participate in how you grow. The Father is going to prune some of you so that you might produce more. We're all called to grow and produce fruit in our season. And then we're called to advance to the next station. But why do we need to do that? Well, it's all in service to not only growing up, becoming more mature, but we also are called out. And what are we called out for? Well, take a look. Verse 15, do not love the world. Almost sounds like the beginning of another book, but it's not. It's deeply related. You see, the Lord calls his people up to be distinctive, but he calls us out. Because if I'm growing in these ways, if I'm growing past being a suckling, in seasons of, sick, of, of, of just sin over and over again, if I'm growing as a sage and pouring into the lives of others, if I'm growing as a soldier and I'm fighting valiantly and walking the good life, or the good walk before God in life, I will also grow in other ways that will allow me to satisfy this command. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For anyone loves the world, the Father is not in him. And for all of this is what's in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Hang in there. Stay with me for just a moment. It's going to get very nerdly. The Lord is calling us to grow out of our love for the world. Why? Very simply put, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one or love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So God calls us to not love the world because it is impossible to love it and him simultaneously. 
And so the scriptures will later say, we want the love of God in us being growing and perfected so that the love of the world can find no space in us. When I was reading this passage, I, got, I was captivated by this sequence. Love of the flesh, love of the eyes, or lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it took me back. The room kind of got wavy, you know. You know when it happens in the cartoons or wherever. I was like, what's going on, Lord? You know, that's hyperbole. However, we did have this conversation. I'm thinking about how the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life have been the historic DNA. It is the mitochondrial DNA of all sin. It was there in the garden. Eve was presented with something to look at, and it was desirable to the eyes. Something to, to lust for. It was delicious to the flesh. It tasted good. It wasn't sour grapes. But at the same time, it had this other strand of the DNA, which was that it was, it was, it was good. It, was, it made her proud. It was, I need to get there. Something that God is holding back. It was the pride of life was right there in the Garden of Eden. All three of them. And when all three strands of the, of the sinful fleshly DNA are in play, we find ourselves being undeniably drugged into this love that we can't explain. Now, what's interesting about the, the DNA, just like physical DNA, you don't see it laying on the surface. Like, no one came into to the surface today and was like, that's some DNA on the floor. We can't see it, but we know that it's there because it's doing its job. And the same thing happens with sin. And therefore, we are called not to just walk around town like prudes trying to fight sin with a fly swatter. We're called to change what we love. So if I change what I love, if I let the love of God be perfected in me, then the love of the world can find no place in me. We're called to be distinctive. Here's the thing that I was going to share earlier. So I'm reading this, I'm reading over John a bunch of times, trying to get my head around it and trying to get it in my heart. And I think about the book of Judges, specifically over in like chapter two-ish. The Lord is speaking to his people in the book of Judges. Israel is camped down in the land and folks from Joshua's generation are starting to die and go home to be, with the, be gathered with their fathers, as they call it. And it says... Um, Hey, when you, get in the, when you get in the land here, you need to make sure you tear down the altars of the, uh, the other gods that previously occupied this place. Do not enter into relationships with the resident people. Don't enter into covenantal marital relationships with people who serve other gods. And don't try to make them pay rent. Don't, just, don't try to leave them in the land and just say, we're going to just make some money. We're going to opportunize this because you will inevitably compromise. So much so, God spoke it. It was accurate. They did. Voila, you have the book of Judges. Several consecutive cycles of sin that last for years and years and years where God's people find themselves in repetitive cycles. And in one of the judges that the Lord raises up at the bottom of one of those cycles, right? So they, they sin, they get in the bottom, they groan, God faithfully hears them, and then he sends a judge to deliver them. And they'll have peace for a season until they go back to being a suckling back in their new cycle. Now follow me carefully. This is where the nerdisms come in. When you follow the ministry of Samson, something really distinct happens. Everybody know about Samson and the, and the strength and the tearing and pushing and all this kind of stuff, but there's three other moments you need to see in Samson's life that are very distinctive. Samson, when he was born, 
Uh, well, right before he was born, his mother was met by the angel of the Lord and said, you're going to have a child, you're currently barren, but you're going to bear a child. And this child is going to be distinctive to me. You shall eat nothing unclean, you will not shave his head, and you shall not drink any fruit of the vine. This child is reserved, sanctified, distinctive for me. Samson is born. Samson grows up, and uh, he's, he's walking uh, uh, down the way, and it says he goes down to Temnah, and he sees a woman amongst the Philistines, and he loves her. Goes back home and says, I got to have her, Dad. And his dad logically says, bro, we don't do that. This is one of the great commands. God told us not to fraternize and to fall in love in relationship with people who serve other gods. And these people are our oppressors. We don't do this. They don't serve the God that we serve. Don't do that. Are there not any people among your own people that you would want to marry? And he was like, I got to have her. In that moment, Samson began his fall. Doesn't seem like it. It just seemed like he fell in love. But this is the this is the why that we're told not to let the love of the world live in us. Because because what 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 Samson's first wife typifies for him is this, and for us, it is a love for the world that will always make departure from God's will feel logical. No one could tell Samson that was not a good way to go. Why? Because he loved it intensely. And so when you lionize. Lift up and elevate love, just secular love, love without qualification, love without Christian context, love without redemptive anchoring. You can celebrate love, and that's exactly what Samson did. He loved her, and then it led him to a place that he was not supposed to go, and it led him to a place that he did not listen to those around him in his life who knew his call. Because Manoah, when he found out that his wife was with child, wanted to meet with the angel of the Lord and says, what shall be this child's manner of life? So he knew what Samson was supposed to do. But there was another moment in Samson's life. Do you remember? He's on the way. He slays a lion, rips it apart like a small goat, leaves it on the side of the road, comes back later, and there is honey. Bees have come, and there's honey in the carcass. Now follow me carefully. As a Nazarite, he was never supposed to be near anything dead. But it was honey in the carcass. And this is the second thing that the world does to us. The first one is that when we, we fall in love with the world, we make a departure from God's will and it feels logical. But the world always is serving what I call honey in the carcass. It is a love for the world's goods that comes with a hidden compromise. It's a love for the world's good that comes with a hidden compromise. In other words, there is nothing wrong with honey, ladies and gentlemen. There's stuff that the world has to offer, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with it. What's wrong with it is what it causes us to touch in the meantime that we get it. It's always offering honey in the carcass. There's nothing wrong with working a job. There's nothing wrong with owning a house. There's nothing wrong with, with a nice car. There's nothing wrong with so many things that we do. But are we discerning and mindful of how much our love for that thing is bringing us into close proximity with something that we should never touch? There is a third. After he gets into a, a, a scuffle because of his love for his first wife, who eventually goes on to be his best man's wife, he then meets another woman by the name of Delilah. Her name in Hebrew literally means drip and not, <laughs> not drip, not, this, not that kind of drip. 
The Bible talks about drip. You ever seen the power of a drip? I'm talking about that little leak in your sink. That the first drip doesn't do anything, the second drip doesn't do anything, the 30,000th drip doesn't do anything. But about 10 years later, there's a small spot right around, right around the, the, the drain that's worn out. You're like, how is it that this sink that is hard as anything that I know is worn out by a simple drip? Because it's continuous. Delilah dripped on Samson. He put his head on her lap and it says that she wore him down over and over and over again, asking him for the secret to his great strength. And finally, he was just exacerbated by her continuous drip. And so, so, so this is what the world does. A love for the world eventually, a love for the world gradually wears down our commitment to even our deepest convictions. Samson knew from the time of his birth, or at least as he's coming into his own, he knows that he's a Nazarite and that he should not do that. So what happened? What happened in Samson's life is because he allowed his hair to be cut in the moment when he was under attack and he needed the power of God once more and again, it seemed to not be available. And it wasn't because just he had cut his hair. What made the cutting of the hair possible was the honey. And what made the honey possible was the route that he took to go down to Timnah to meet that first wife. This is, a, this is in Samson's life what the lust of the eye, he saw her and had to have her. Lust of the flesh, he saw that honey and had to have it. And the pride of life, he just wanted peace, he just wanted what everybody else has. The strength of God will always feel less available. Listen, to, listen through this through the lens of Samson's life. The strength of God will always feel less available when the holiness of God becomes less valuable. This is why the scriptures call us to not love the world. Because when these three desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they come individually, sequentially, and constantly, slowly dripping into our lives, wearing down our sensitivities. The Lord is calling us to grow out of love for the world. Notice that I didn't say that, the world, that it's calling us to fall out of love, but it's to grow out. You can fall in love easy, but, but, but in order to grow in God's love, you, you, have to, you have to grow in love with the Lord. One of the ways that we grow in love with the Lord is clearly outlined for us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, this is an ongoing process, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern. Some of your Bibles say discern. Other Bibles will say that you may demonstrate what is the will of God and what is acceptable and perfect. This idea of not being conformed to the world but being transformed by the renewing of my mind ought to be re reminding of us of taking out the trash. In your home, just in the normal doing of life, you accumulate stuff that ain't usable and that have to be tied up and put away and taken to another place. In the course of doing life, on your job, everywhere you go, any space that you move, at your school, everything that you do, there is a worldly accumulation. You can't help it. We're in the world, but we're not of it. But so there's trash that we have to take out of our hearts and minds on a regular basis. We have to regular basis take things out of our mind, not thinking on the things that are below, but thinking on the things that are below. Taking these things out of our minds and binding them up and throwing them away. Total and complete repentance and sanctification. We have to take out the trash on a regular basis. I want you to live in that, that illustration for a moment. 
Think about how you would feel if you came to someone's home and the trash can was just running over and it was like, we'll get to it in a moment. You would be actively bothered. But that's what each and every one of us do when we are slow to repent and we take on easy street when it comes to sanctification. You've got a trash can in the middle of your intellectual, mental, and emotional, spiritual kitchen that is overflowing. And by the time you go get to the bag, the handles rip off and you got juice running down the floor all the way out to the driveway because you didn't get there early enough. And you've got a smell you've got to clean up. You don't even want the can in the house anymore. I hope you feel that. I hope you see that. The Lord is calling us up and the Lord is calling us out. Worldliness, this kind of worldliness, this, this thing that, 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 that we Samson modeled and that we're told to be mindful of is a slow, corrosive work that is gradually numbing my sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's work and strength in my life. You ever wonder why you don't feel like you have the strength to fight off things that you should? Like, why don't I feel like I have the strength to, to, to do to, to, to what, what the pastors are saying we should do? Why don't I have the strength to follow through on what this book is telling me to do? Why don't I seem to be continuously wrapped up in it? Because you're trying to fight, and it, but, but you haven't focused on the pursuit of personal holiness. You still love the world. You view the Christian life, I view the Christian life as a negotiation rather than navigation. The will of God is intended to help me navigate the world. I'm in it but not of it. We want to negotiate. We want to bring our, we want to bring our best sins to the table and our best understanding of God's Word and see if the two of them can work something out. Here's a desire that I have, Lord. Here's your will for my life. Can we get the two of these in the room? Do you know what happens in every negotiation? There has to be a compromise, and God's not going to budge. Our love for the Lord should grow and be perfected so that the love of the world has no place in us. I pastored a church um, some years ago in the middle 2000s. And there was a, a woman in that church, dear sister who's going home to be with the Lord. One of the things she suffered from was diabetic neuropathy. And one of the interesting things about it, and I'd never seen this before, but she told me, she says, Pastor Rod, she says, sometimes when I leave my home and I walk across the street to go to the little corner store, because I can't feel my feet, my shoes will slip off. And by the time I get home, my feet are bleeding and I never knew that they were cut up because she didn't have any feeling in her feet. Ladies and gentlemen, when we fall in love with the world, we gradually begin to suffer from a spiritual neuropathy. In our walk, we don't even know how much we're hurting because we've lost sensitivity in that area. But all is not lost. In every one of the successive cycles of sin that Israel went through and that you and I will go through, the hope of the gospel is this. Even where there is much sin, it can be offset by the persistent act of God's mercy and forgiveness. This is why at the heart of 1 John, you've got 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If I come into agreement with God about my sin, he is faithful to forgive. Whenever I miss it, there is mercy available. Don't ever believe you're disqualified for God's mercy. Wherever I miss it, there's mercy available. But that's the hope of the gospel. But do you know what the heart of the gospel is? The heart of the gospel is that the love of God be perfected in me to the point that the world can find no place in me. 
that I move from being a suckling that's always hanging out at the cross asking for forgiveness from the same sin, and I become a soldier while I'm coming to the, to the base of the cross bringing the heads of my Goliaths in my sin. I'm dropping it off. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to get some more. And so, I don't want us to miss the heart or the hope of the gospel. We need them both. It is a dual, it is a multifaceted message that, yes, invites us to enjoy forgiveness regardless of how much we've blown it. But it also wants us to focus steadfastly on the work of Jesus Christ and see his unwavering love for us and that we would fall in love with him as a response. I feel like today what we've all done, as I call it, spiritual cruise control, we have become very okay with our current blessing level and say, I don't need to up the ante anymore. I'm good with the number of chips I got in front of me, God. I'm not going all in. I'm going to take this home and just kind of cash out. Leave me alone. Don't ask me to make any deeper investment. That's for pastors and, and these other people who want to have high or whatever roles in the body of Christ. Leave me alone and let me just cash out my chips. The problem is you are not growing when you do that in your love for the Lord and the world is gaining ground like a slow leaking faucet. And you'll look back and wonder, where are all my chips? Where, where is my vigilance? Where is my vigor? It's slowly, slowly worn down by allowing some of the love of the world to live in our lives. We are called to be distinctive. This morning as I close, as I close, if you haven't been served for communion, uh, would you raise your hand? Raise your hand. We're going to take communion together. When we celebrate the Lord's table, what we're saying is, Lord, I remember and celebrate both the hope of the gospel. I came in with no righteousness of my own. My premier focus was my sinfulness and my brokenness. I fell in love with your forgiving capacity, the fact that there was endless forgiveness in you. I fell in love with the blood. I, we celebrate that. But we also, when we take communion, celebrate the heart of the gospel, which isn't just about dragging ourselves there because of our sins, but it's also allowing the Spirit of the Lord to lead us to go out and bring others into the body. We, the, the, this, this distinct and whole body that we are a part of, it grew because someone was out there sharing the gospel. It became a whole body, an unbroken body, because Jesus' work on the cross makes a promise that one day our body will be like his. We'll have a redeemed body that will no longer respond to the cares and the loves of this world. So the Lord is not asking us to, to do something that he isn't already working on. He's made a promise that we'll have a body that won't respond to the love. He's made a promise that we will be with him in a space and in a place where temptation no longer has a place in us. And this is what we celebrate when we take communion. Do you have your emblems? If you are... Um, wondering what all this is about. You're saying to yourself, well, man, communion seems kind of cool, and it, it, you're ending the message with it. It seems like part of its punctuation. I think I'm supposed to do that. You should only be taking communion, not if you're perfect, but if you have come to the cross and put down your sin. 
We should be taking communion together if you are, you really can personally celebrate, celebrate the reality of Jesus Christ dying on the cross in your place, not in everybody else's place, in your place for your sins and made you a part of his whole body. If that's not your testimony, this is not an indictment against you, this is an invite. If you're sitting next to someone who understands the gospel, would you ask them, what is this about? I want to participate. I don't want just cup. I don't just want bread. I want what is behind it and what it represents. If you're, if you're near somebody who doesn't know what to do with the cup and the bread, would you talk to them about your Lord Jesus Christ and why you take and why you celebrate? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following say, For I have received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, for which, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the Lord's body, or this wafer that represents his body together. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We are remembering the Lord's work on the cross. Will you take the cup together with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, as we celebrate your completed work, you have loved us like we've never been loved before. And now, if we place faith in you, we now have your love working within us. Lord God, grow your love in us so that the world's love has no more place in us. We need you in this desperate way. Show us, Lord God, where we're eating honey from the carcass. Show us, oh God, where we've gone from, from trying to make logic of our sin because we have fallen in love with the world. Show us, Lord God, where the desires of the world have gradually dripped, dripped away and worn out our sensitivities to the Holy Spirit. Show us, oh God, where we've devalued holiness and found ourselves at a place of strengthlessness. Like Samson, show us. But also, Lord God, show us the way of mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.